This is District Sentinel Radio, the newscast of record for the left. I'm Sam Sachs, broadcasting out of the Sentinel Fort in Washington, D.C. Check out the website, districtsentinel.com. Check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash districtsentinel. Today, we bring you another installment of our interviews with insurgent left-wing candidates challenging incumbent Democrats in 2020. We've talked to individuals running against Democratic leadership. And today, they're going after the head honcho, Nancy Pelosi. We are joined by Shahed Buttar, a Democratic socialist and civil libertarian running for Congress in California's 12th district. He's taking on Nancy Pelosi. Uh, he got the most votes against her when he ran in 2018. Shahed, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Sam. So you used to be a, a D.C. guy. We're still here in D.C., me and Sam. Uh, in fact, we've hung out a few times. I remember uh, you were an authority on issues like digital rights, surveillance, and privacy stuff. When I was reporting on those things, I'd interview you on those topics. And then one day I look on Twitter, and you've moved out to California to challenge Nancy Pelosi, now the Speaker of the House. This was back in 2018. You're challenging her again in 2020. What inspired this? Uh, a few things. So I moved back to California. I moved out here first in 2000 to go to law school here at Stanford before I ever moved to the district. And I came back in 2008, shortly before the 2008 election, uh, seeing the writing on the wall and thinking with the end of the Bush administration that I could go back to living my life. I came back to D.C. Uh, under the Obama administration when the surveillance state continued to run amok. And uh, at some point, it was 2015 when I moved back to the Bay Area most recently. So I've been here for about 10 years over the last 20. Uh, and I did run last year principally because on the very same set of issues that you're describing, surveillance, uh, the creeping rise of authoritarianism, and I could you know, develop this further on a whole range of other issues, the Speaker of the House, who represents me in San Francisco, unfortunately, is not doing the job of promoting progressive uh, or visionary values. Uh, and on entirely too many issues from foreign policy to fiscal austerity rules to health care policy, the speaker takes a very centrist, corporate protecting position. And as a democratic socialist and as a civil libertarian on each of those dimensions, I feel, frankly, a mix of concern, alarm and outrage. And that's basically what forced my hand. I'm an advocate who's watched our concerns fall on the deaf ears of our elected officials entirely too many times. And uh, to put it very simply, uh, I got sick of it. And uh, I'm eager to give our city an alternative voice in Congress. It seems like with the uh, impeachment issue front and center that people who uh, are interested in, pol interested in politics, but maybe not so much uh, policy details, with the impeachment issues, they are more able to see how uh, deficient of a leader Pelosi is. I mean, that that's what it seems like anecdotally. And I guess what I'm trying to say here is after 2018, it seemed like a lot of people were like, well, let's give Nancy Pelosi another shot at speaker, give her the benefit of the doubt for some reason. Well, there was a range of people like, I guess this is the best we can do. And then people like saying she's going to be the most progressive speaker in history. Right. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is since her time as her latest time as speaker, do you think it's easier now to make the case against Pelosi and, and why she 
just absolutely has to go? She does make my job easier with every passing day. Uh, and, and another way to put that is that the president's lawlessness is so extreme that Speaker Pelosi's unwillingness to pull the levers available to her and our republic to pursue executive accountability expose her own leadership of the Democratic Party as essentially feckless and co-opted at best, if not complicit, which I fear would be worse. And at the end of the day, I wrote an, I wrote an op-ed about impeachment that was published in Truth Out, shared virally by the nation's most renowned constitutional authority, Larry Tribe. And the underlying point of that piece was that impeaching this criminal president is a constitutional imperative. It is paramount to any party's perceived electoral interest. It's paramount to any party's perceived calculus of what might happen in the Senate. And if we do drill down on those realpolitik issues, the biggest thing to grip here is that if we don't pursue impeachment, it emboldens the kleptocrat. It will undermine democratic opportunities for success in 2020, particularly because we've already heard him publicly announce that he might want to end any election process, right? I mean, he wants to install himself for the rest of his, and I suspect if he had his way beyond his natural foreign life, right? And <laughs> the, the thousand-year I mean, Reich or whatever. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and there's a further piece here to note. Pelosi has a reputation of being a master tactician. And I will concede that in most areas it's well-deserved. It, her model is profoundly resignatory. And the concession to the current time slice, the presumption that we can't pick up votes in the Senate, even if there are sustained news cycles about the process of the president's uh, essentially accountability process vis-a-vis -vis the Congress, uh, to think that we can't pick up votes in the Senate, even if we put Democratic Party activists and left-leaning activists in purple states represented by red senators in play, forcing those senators to choose between the president's future and their own. The idea that we can't pick up votes in the Senate is preposterous. And frankly, I mean, it, it's both irrelevant and preposterous. Uh, the Republic needs accountability from this criminal president. And aside, maybe the last thing I'll say just on impeachment for the moment is that beside the issues surrounding obstruction of justice and collusion with foreign powers and a serial lies to policymakers, the public and the press, the president has also demonstrably and on the public record enriched himself. The emoluments clause alone gives plenty of grounds to pursue impeachment. Uh, and, and frankly, the self-dealing corruption of the sort that we see in the White House today, it is inexcusable. And there's no, no reason under any circumstances that any Speaker of the House should tolerate and add on top of that attempts to uh, start wars without Congress. And now 22 women have accused him of sexual assault. So add that right. to everything else you've said. No, it's a litany. We could go on for days and still barely scratch the surface of this president's crimes. Yes. From, from what, I, what I'm gathering here from you, Shahid, is that in addition to running on a progressive flat platform, which we'll dive into here in just a little bit, it's also about running putting people in congress once again and you kind of see this distinction when you're trying to draw the differences between bernie sanders and elizabeth warren uh who are running both on the left flank but what are the differences well bernie seems like someone who wants to create a revolution to reclaim power democrats have forgotten how to use power nancy pelosi seems to be a shining example of that nancy pelosi if it worked out if she actually did this there's a chance she could be president like <laughs> 
Like there's a future where she could be president and she won't even embark on this path. Uh, it, it's about bringing a, another a fight back, a, a new way to to wield power. I absolutely agree. I think part of it is about projecting power. Part of that implicit in that uh, project is an awareness of historical context and where we are at in the broader arc of, for instance, the battle between working people and the capital that effectively enslaves so many of us. Uh, you know, that, that historical arc is one that we have to be informed by. For me, in the current time slice, I think that executive accountability and holding power accountable are super important. And, you know, this has also been a theme of my work for many years. When I was uh, 2015, I was arrested in a U.S. Senate hearing chamber for an act of journalism when I asked a question of an Obama administration official. And the official I was asking me a question about, uh, this was the director of national intelligence at the time, James Clapper, who'd lied under oath to Congress about mass surveillance, and it took Edward Snowden's disclosures to correct the public record. Uh, I was asking him how he never got charged for perjury, despite lying to the people's representatives under oath about a matter of grave public importance, when Eric Garner, six months before, had been choked to death on the streets of New York without a charge, without a trial, on the mere suspicion of a trivial offense. And the juxtaposition between persecutory, lethal, so-called justice for powerless people and the permissive so-called justice that's let, that lets powerful criminals walk away with public pensions and entourages, uh, I, I find that unacceptable. And as an immigrant constitutional lawyer, I frankly am not willing to tolerate it. You know, my family did not move halfway across the world twice so that I could witness the rise of, you know, a banana republic in the nation that inspired the rest of the world to follow suit. Uh, you know, whatever we might say about our kleptocrat in chief, the United States is, for better or worse, still the leader of the vestiges of the free world. And uh, I aim to preserve that legacy. Let's talk about uh, some of the policies on your platform here. A democratic socialist platform, you support things like Medicare for All, a Green New Deal. We've seen Pelosi pretty effectively use her power. This is the way she uses her power when she wants to use her power is to kneecap a progressive agenda. Uh, we saw her weaken a Green New, a climate change committee. Uh, we have seen her uh, advisors giving briefings to health insurance executives telling them company. yeah and pharmaceutical yep. companies telling them hey don't worry about uh single payer don't worry about medicare for all this isn't going to happen uh have people are, are people connecting making that connection that the reason why we aren't seeing more uh forward momentum for these progressive policies like a green new deal like a medicare for all is because pelosi is standing in the way of them I think, again, she's making the case for me, and my job over the next year is to make sure that everybody understands, in no uncertain terms, that the impediment on a progressive visionary agenda is the speaker, not just the president. Uh, and I think you're absolutely right to note it. At the same time that she finally conceded to the creation of the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, Speaker Pelosi also unfortunately chose to deny that committee policymaking authority and even subpoena power to conduct meaningful investigations. Uh, her modus operandi, her MO, is to nod at progressive interests while undermining them in practice. And unfortunately, that's a pattern that stretches across many years of her representation. Yeah, I don't want to um, you know, demonize her. She, she has been a, 
a thoughtful leader at points supporting progressive interests, but she, to the extent she ever supports progressive interests, it's usually after years and years of cajoling. Another example here, one of the things that San Francisco is known around the world for is being a mecca of the LGBT communities. And you know, I was a, a baby lawyer fresh out of law school as, as a cis-hetero-Muslim ally fighting court battles seeking, asserting the right of married couples, or pardon me, of any individual to marry the partner of their choice, marriage equality for same-sex couples here. I was doing that 10 years before Speaker Pelosi uh, even acknowledged the rights of her own constituents. Uh, and that's a perfect example. You know, marriage equality is one of the few areas where I think most progressives would recognize that we've gained ground. In the last generation, I organized the second impact litigation case uh, asserting that right, the first in the state of New York, this was in 2004, most Democrats, most LGBT people uh, weren't even with us at the time. And, you know, having fought for an issue when it was under the bus, having helped make the seemingly impossible real before, in the face of the speaker's intransigence and commitment to yesterday instead of tomorrow, uh, I'm very eager to continue standing uh, with tomorrow. It's rather than conceding to yesterday. It's no secret Pelosi got her start in Democratic politics by being a fundraiser, basically. And uh, speaking of San Francisco, it does have this reputation for being this radical left-wing place, but there are a lot of rich homeowners there who, uh, quite frankly, uh, the share more in common with uh, conservatives than I'm sure they would care to admit. Do you think that Pelosi is able to sort of hang on to the seat because of uh, the demographics in San Francisco maybe being uh, leaning toward rich homeowners? Am, am, am I totally like misconstruing that? Uh, basically, do you think that um, you might be even too left wing for the district? I don't know. I, the the one part of what you're describing that I would agree is accurate is just the idea that there are a lot of rich homeowners in the city. I don't think that that makes Pelosi any more likely to to retain the seat, and I certainly don't think I'm too left for the district. I mean, frankly, the, this is the most progressive city in the country, and it is preposterous that we're represented by the most conservative member of the Bay Area's congressional delegation. I can look across the Bay to Oakland and see Barbara Lee. I can look down the Bay and see Rocana and San Jose. Well, these are two cities. They're they're both you know wonderful cities, and I'm proud to to be in the area with them. Neither of them have San Francisco's reputation as a home of the movement for peace and justice, as a mecca for LGBT communities, as a countercultural capital in recurring eras from the 50s and the beat poets and the 60s and the hippies and the 70s and the punks and the you know Burning Man generation. This city has always been a crucible of new ideas, and yet for the past generation. We've been represented by someone beholden to old ideas, and uh, I think that is exactly what puts me in the perfect position to take this seat. You know, on universal health care, for instance, on robust solutions to the climate crisis, uh, on ending mass incarceration and mass surveillance. My platform is certainly more reflective of our city's consensus, and I think ultimately that's why I'm going to take the seat. Maybe the one last thing I'd say on your question, which is thought, is that if I had the opportunity at any point to be myself in 2019, but running in a 1990s San Francisco, I would win this seat hands down with my eyes closed and my, you know, 
sitting on my hands, frankly. <laughs> but the city has changed very dramatically in the last generation. And, and one thing I think you're correctly noting is that the composition of San Francisco is very different than it was a generation ago. On the one hand, many of the entrants to our city are upwardly mobile, high-income folks, maybe who work, for instance, in the technology industries. That notwithstanding, while they might be uh, well-off, a lot of those people are very serious thinkers, visionaries, ideological iconoclasts themselves. Uh, the, the transplants that have come to our city very recently might not share the decades-long immersion in counterculture that San Francisco has, but I do think that they are uh, people who are committed to the future. And, and even those transplants, even the technology industry workers, I think they're going to be coming with me in 2020. We discussed how one of the differences between your 2018 run and 2020 run is that Pelosi is now in a position of leadership and unwilling to hold the president accountable, which is some pretty good red meat when you're running a campaign against her. Uh, what other things besides that did you learn or are, are different from 2018 to 2020 that'll help you with your run this time from last time? Another great question. You know, with respect to the theme of the speaker's leadership role and the places where her abdication of our community's interests are creating opportunities for us, one of the big ones relates to an example of environmental racism and environmental injustice here in San Francisco. So the Green New Deal is a national vision. Here in San Francisco, there's a particular neighborhood, Hunter's Point, which in D.C. terms maybe would be roughly analogous to like Berry Farms, let's say. Uh, and so Hunter's Point, there was a Navy shipyard there for many years. It's on the, the bay itself in the southeastern corner of the city. Uh, for many years, the Navy was dumping toxic chemicals all over this neighborhood. And it's been a Superfund site for the last 20 years. We found out, I think the first year of the first disclosure might have been 2016, uh, but the soil samples uh, that were being collected to document the um, efforts of the corporate contractor responsible for the cleanup were found to be fraudulent, which is to say mm -hmm. there is a massive uh, failure of both corporate and military accountability here in San Francisco at the Hunter's Point Shipyard. This is a community of generally lower-income African-American folks with vastly disproportionate cancer rates because they've been exposed to environmental carcinogens over the last generation. It would be great if we had a powerful member of Congress who simply through their constituent services work might show up for members of our community. And even though we have the most powerful member of Congress representing that community, there's been no oversight. There's been no independent check and balance. The military and the corporate cover-up continues. And frankly, that's just a perfect example of the abdication of our city's representation in Washington, of actually doing the job of representing our community's interests. Well, I am shocked that Nancy Pelosi, who uh, can't seem to open her mouth about the military without just spewing a word salad of jingoistic nonsense, I can't believe she isn't taking the Navy on in her own district. Uh, one more question. We've asked this to other uh, uh, candidates we've had on the show who are taking on Democratic incumbents. Yeah, we had Michaela, Michaela uh, Wilkes, Wilkes, who's taking on Steny Hoyer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we've I've been had, following her campaign. I'm excited about it. Um, Joshua Collins, the, uh, the, the trucker who's for the Green Washington New Deal State. in Washington State, taking on Denny mm -hmm. Heck. 
Yep. Uh, basically, the question is, which candidate in the presidential primary uh, do you think gives you the biggest boost and gives uh, the biggest boost to down-ballot candidates like yourself? Yeah, there's there's no question. It's Bernie Sanders, far and away, uh, with a pale second in Liz Warren. I'll be perfectly frank. I would not have run for Congress in 2018 had Bernie Sanders in 2016 not demonstrated particularly two things. The first was that the nation is changing dramatically and fast. It is trending to the left, particularly as boomers transition and millennials take their place. And with millennials now already becoming the largest generational voting bloc in the country and knowing that millennials are the most progressive generation that our republic has ever seen, there is a a field tilting in our favor. And I think Bernie demonstrated that in 2016. He also demonstrated how to run a campaign in a way that builds movements. I've been a grassroots organizer, community organizer, policy advocate, you know, writer, nonprofit leader, impact litigator, a bunch of different things. But for a long time, I've been building movements. And, and the point I'm raising here is that people have been asking me to run for office since I graduated from law school. And my response has always been, you know, I understand why I might be good at this. I also think that the game is a racket and I have no interest in participating in a corrupt exercise. And that was the end of it for me. Particularly, you know, one of the reasons in making that case that I always felt committed to supporting movements uh, instead of being in the electoral arena was recognizing that candidates tend to be vampires, that most campaigns suck the air and the resources and the time and the lifeblood out of social movements instead of supporting them and growing movements. And I saw Bernie, through an electoral campaign, grow the movement. I saw him connect supporters to each other. I saw him shout out frontline organizations. I saw him raise concerns that people in communities are confronted by and challenged with. And seeing that example changed my thinking. You know, it was Bernie's example in 2016 that demonstrated for me the template of how to run a campaign as a movement actor in a way that leaves the movement stronger than I found it. And, and that's, that's ultimately why I'm running. Uh, and I think that the example also that he proved with the policy paradigm shifting to the left, I think many of the issues that he promoted, like Medicare for All, that's probably the most conspicuous example, though, in the wake of yesterday's news cycle, uh, canceling student debt. These are examples of visionary policy proposals that meet the needs of the American people that have already proven incredibly influential in pulling the other candidates to the left. Uh, you know, one very revealing comparison here is between Speaker Pelosi, the head of the Democratic Party in the House, and all of the presidential campaigns. And all of the presidential campaigns are running to the left, particularly because Bernie is forcing their hand, while the Speaker remains committed to a stale, dying brand of Democratic Party politics that is more committed to corporations before communities and profit before people. It's been funny to watch these dinosaurs in the party respond to insurgent challengers and how flat-footed like Joe Crowley was in his race against AOC. Where, where do you think you are in that apoc- apocryphal quote? What stage are you in in the first they ignore you, then they ridicule you, then they fight you, then you win? I'm not entirely sure. Maybe, uh, maybe somewhere between ridicule and fight. Uh, I, I did get more votes last year in the 2018 primary in the 12th Congressional District in California than anyone challenging Pelosi from the left in a primary in a decade, Hmm. which is to say Hmm. I've already drawn blood. And that was in three months. I was only in the race for three months at the very end of the cycle and without media support, and we got 17,500 votes. Wow. Uh, That was more than 
some current members of Congress in their respective primaries. So they're All not ignoring you. Demonstrated. Well, I, you know, they, they ignore me publicly, which is probably the best thing they can do, because if, if Pelosi, for instance, did ever show up to debate me or respond to our concerns, that would pretty much seal the end of her career, because <laughs> there is no defensible rationale for many of the decisions that she's taken as the speaker. And if she is forced to confront a reasoned debate, uh, frankly, we all know which way that's going to go. So the, the I, I don't think they recognize that, uh, that showing up to fight me publicly is not going to work out very well for them, which is why I think they're still trying to uh, rely on the resource advantage that they have and the national visibility that the speaker enjoys and the sales to keep them in front. At the end of the day, I am very, very well positioned to take second place in our primary in the spring because of our system here in California. Second place in the March primary puts me in the general election against Pelosi. And when there is a one-to-one contrast in a general election between an architect of yesterday's policies and the failed paradigm that delivered us a kleptocrat in the White House, a failed paradigm that ensures that Americans die every day because they can't get access to the preventive care that they deserve and are entitled to as a matter of human rights, a failed paradigm that's more committed to wars for profit abroad and corporate resource extraction than to climate justice and a sustainable future for our species. Uh, you know, I, I think that that choice between that failed paradigm and a brighter one, an alternative vision of tomorrow that will make sure that every American and their parents and their kids can get doctors and medicine when they need them, that make sure that every American and their parents and their kids has access to shelter and food, basic human rights. Uh, I think these are very compelling contrasts that, that will prove equally compelling to the voters here in San Francisco. If I may, there's one further thing I just want to, uh, a point to make here. Yeah. With respect to the policy differences, the visionary alternatives like Medicare for All, like the Green New Deal, even they are the, are the beginning. And there is, there is a wave coming that will transform American society. And by the time we are done, you know, voting day will be a national holiday. Everyone will have the right to vote without having to go through a bunch of machinations to satisfy right-wing vote suppression tactics. By the time we're done, uh, people will enjoy climate justice. They'll enjoy opportunities, regardless of their starting points in this life. There are, there are a wave of policies that are coming. There is a paradigm that is shifting. I am very much a part of it, uh, as are you know so many of the other people uh, that you've mentioned, uh, Josh, Michaela, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Pramila Jayapal, Rokana, the wave is coming. It is here already. Uh, and, and we're not going to uh, take more of the same for an answer. Well said, Shahed. And after uh, hearing uh, some of your policy prescriptions, I'm tempted to become the left-wing obnoxious Ben Shapiro on Twitter and constantly tweet at Nancy Pelosi to debate you. <laughs> <laughs> Please feel free. I won't do that. Just yeah, I'll do the, it for uh, you. No, it, it's not a good look. Nobody else wants to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> before we wrap things up, if people want to get involved in your campaign, if they want to know more about it, where do they go? What do they do? Thanks, Sam. You can visit us online at shahidforchange.us. That's S H A H I D, like David, F O R C H A N G E dot US, or any of the major social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, at Shahid for Change. Awesome. Thanks so much for uh, sitting down with us, and uh, best of luck.
in the yeah, campaign ahead. So much. Big time. Best of luck. Big time. Right on. Thanks, y'all. I appreciate you uh, bringing me on. It's uh, always great to talk with you. Thanks again to Shawhead. That'll do it for the show today. Subscribe at patreon.com slash district sentinel to get access to all our bonus content throughout the week. Thanks to our sponsor, the Congressional Dish Podcast, hosted by Jen Briney. Find it at congressionaldish.com. We're back tomorrow. We're here in D.C., so you don't have to be.